What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. It's unfair that we can't listen to our music. It's because it is about drugs and promiscuous sex. Simon and Garfunkel is poetry. Yes, it's poetry. It is the poetry of drugs and promiscuous sex. Honey, they're on pot. That's Francis McDormand with Zoe Deschanel and Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. This week on the show, go ahead and ground us, Mom. We're talking sex, drugs, and rock and roll with a Sacred Cow review of Crowe's autobiographical ode to 70s rock. Plus, rock writer Stephen Hyden joins us for his take on the movie and a conversation about his new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. Just last week, we talked about a new Star Wars movie. You even somehow rewatched this movie that we were both pretty mixed to negative on. You saw it again. I saw a tweet, something about Chewbacca eating flesh. What did I miss? Well, so the second viewing posed a question for me that's kind of a spoiler question. Oh, okay. So I don't know if we can tread carefully. Let me just ask you vaguely, if you think about having seen Solo. Uh-huh. Are we now to understand that Chewbacca has tasted human flesh? I have no idea what you're talking about. Really? That I didn't, blocked that didn't, it. I blocked the well, whole it's a thing dis- out. It's a disturbing thing to think about, but I'm going to say the evidence on the screen is yes. Okay. And I, I'm rethinking my whole relationship to Star Wars now. <laughs> Fair enough. Last week on that solo show, we also shared our interview with writer-director Paul Schrader, his new movie, First Reformed is out. We both love this movie, one of the best films of the year so far. It should be expanding to more cities over the next couple of weekends. And we've gotten a lot of positive comments on that interview that we both conducted. If you are a fan of film criticism, which if you're listening to this, you probably are. If you're a fan of filmmaking or interested in filmmaking, I would say it is a must listen. This week on the show, a Sacred Cow review of Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous and part one of our conversation with rock writer Stephen Hyden. Hyden was a longtime writer at the AV Club in Grantland. He's currently a culture critic at uprocks.com. His new book is Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. We'll talk about the book and get his professional opinion on Almost Famous, former rock critic Crowe's autobiographical pian to dumb rockers, philosophical groupies, and Lester Bangs. We also recorded a really fun top five with Haydn, our top five classic rock moments in movies, but that one went on so long. Consider it our double album. It's like Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, except being released on the same day, they're going to be a week apart. So you'll get that next week. Right now, we take you to the San Diego Sports Arena circa 1973, where 15-year-old aspiring rock journalist William Miller is just hanging out waiting to talk with Black Sabbath. Who are you with? What band? Oh, uh, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. I'm a journalist. I'm not, not a, you know. You're not a what? You're not a what? Not a, 
groupie. Aww. Groupie? We are not groupies. This is Penny Lane, man. Show some respect. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are Band-Aids. She used to run a school for Band-Aids. We don't have intercourse with these guys. We support the music. We inspire the music. We're here because of the music. Mark Boland broke her heart, man. It's famous. It's a long story. In a Washington Post interview just prior to the release of Almost Famous, the film's writer, director, and inspiration, Cameron Crowe, recounts a story about David Bowie guitarist Mick Ronson, who had died shortly before the movie started production. In a deathbed conversation, Ronson was asked how it felt to be at ground zero of the decadence in rock. It was a very loving time and a very naive time, or at least it was to me. Ronson explained. And I just thought that was profound, Crow said. Even the guys who were playing glitter rock, which was so subversive, had a lack of irony and cynicism about it that today would be quaint. But the whole global change in rock, cool being a mass concept, was still around the corner. So it was still a little more personal. And all I can say is passionately naive. And I really wanted to catch that. Passionately naive is pretty much the best way to describe most Cameron Crowe characters. I'm thinking here of fewer clients, less money, Jerry Maguire, and I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career, Lloyd Dobler, and say anything. All this negative energy just makes me stronger, Cliff Poncier, and aspiring super-trained architect Steve Dunn in singles. And what about pretty much the entire cast of the Crow-written, Amy Heckerling-directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High? We, of course, remember All I Need Are Some Tasty Waves, A Cool Buzz, and I'm Fine, Jeff Spicoli. And, well, what am I supposed to do? Go up to this strange girl in my biology class and say, hello, I'd like you to take your clothes off and jump on me, Mark Ratner. So... That's one way into Almost Famous. If you can relate to Crow's collection of well-meaning, idealistic misfits, then you'll surely appreciate his Almost Famous stand-in, 15-year-old William Miller, who lands an assignment to cover the up-and-coming band Stillwater on tour for Rolling Stone, just as Crow himself did in the early 70s writing about the Allman Brothers, Led Zeppelin, and many others. But there are other ways in. Lots of them, according to film spotting listener Jim Pellini in Bethpage, New York, who rates Almost Famous as his favorite Crow movie. And really, I think that's because its script is layered with just multiple, very well-developed storylines that Crow certainly must have culled from his own experience. And it, and it really shows in, in a very rich screenplay, I think. You know, at, at one end of the film, you've got the film paying a lot of attention to the role of criticism in music and criticism in art in general. Um, it has a lot of effective biopic elements focusing on Lester Bangs and the founding staff at Rolling Stone. You know, right in the center, you've got kind of the interpersonal conflict with a professional touring rock band that's kind of the bedrock of the story in the script. And then yet it still has time for a very authentic storyline about a mother trying to keep her family together despite, um, I guess you'd call it the lore of the 70s counterculture um, and on top of all that, you've got um, uh, Crow very effectively conveying the, you know, absolute reverie and bliss of live performance, you know, on stage and on hotel rooms and, and as you know, on, on a bus. Um, of all those lines, I, uh, you know, which are really fleshed out beautifully in the film, uh, but to me, there's one that kind of is floats above the rest. And that's the one that focuses on the young, you know, William Miller learning how to, I guess, you know, love a woman for the first time and navigating the emotions sparked by that experience, which is obviously new to him. Um, it's my favorite part of the movie, and I really appreciate you guys doing a review on it. 
It's about time. It's a great one. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Josh, we've never talked about Almost Famous, not in any detail, but I know you are a fan, or at least you were a fan on initial review. After chasing you around Chicagoland screening rooms for four days, I've pinned you down. The mics are live. The tape is rolling. What speaks to you? The attention to criticism, the highs and lows of life on the road, the family dynamic, the love story, as romantically one-sided as it may be, the passionate naivete of the movie's young protagonist and his belief in the power of music, or something else entirely. In other words, what do you love about Almost Famous? Well, I hope we can talk about all those things because it's all good stuff in this really, really good movie that does still hold up. I mean, anything with this amount of optimism is going to look a little hokier with each passing year, but I still don't think I would really apply that word sure. to this movie it's at all. It's that quaintness that Crow uh, yeah, was talking yeah, about. Yeah, it, it's quainter, more quaint each time we revisit it and a few years have passed and maybe we've seen a little bit more about the world and become more cynical ourselves. What did I love about Almost Famous on this revisit? Can I just say Patrick Fugit's face? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's something- it's a key part. It's something that was striking initially. Who is this kid? Where did he find him? Um, he, how he works so perfectly. The fact that he has that, it's not really that he's blushing, but it's almost like he's been sleeping on a pillow on one side for a while and there's just still a little color there <laughs> yeah. uh, that wasn't there before. That changes throughout the film. He always seems to be- a little flushed about something. Yep. And when he looks at these rock stars, when he waits for their answer to his questions, that face. Mm-hmm. So, so I've I have a new nephew, about a month old. Gideon Eno Kuntz. Oh man, his parents are listeners to the show. So, first time shout <laughs> out to name. Gideon. Yeah, well, ties in with the music theme here, of course. And uh, when I look into Gideon's face, we just saw him over the weekend. Uh, he looks older and more wise and more knowing than Patrick Fugit in this movie because the eyes and the awe, but also just realizing for the first time what life could be, which mm-hmm. is something that seems to be happening to him in this movie. Every He's not 20 looking minutes. at you like Fugit looks at Billy Crudup, is he, Josh? I hope not. <laughs> no, no. You don't have that kind of wisdom to dispense. I'm not making that comparison, but it is really something what Fugit brings. And that's got to work, right? I talked about that with Solo and Alden Ehrenreich, that he had to work if the movie was going to soar. Fugit had to work here if Almost Famous was going to soar, and it absolutely does, and a lot of it has to do with him. I I want I do want to get into some of that other stuff. I think probably secondarily stuff that you can more chew on and think about and maybe we can discuss is uh, its attention to criticism, and in particular, the critics' relationship to the creators mm-hmm. as opposed to their art. That's obviously at the heart of this film, but here I've been doing something somewhat in the same arena for a number more years since I first saw Almost Famous, and that's something that's becoming only more complicated. Um, so I'm curious to hear how that struck you as well, yeah. you know, just where things are, especially as you do this more than me, but interview filmmakers for right. the show. Um, and we know filmmakers who follow the show closely and listen on occasion to what we have to say about their movies. And that is all kind of like, it's always kind of given me the willies a little bit sure and seeing almost famous dig into those complications did that more so in a way that was good and challenging and thought-provoking yeah at the end of the day i'm a fan i'm a movie fan and i'm a fan of pretty much everybody who i've ever done an interview with for this show and that line 
potentially crossing that line into exposing your fandom too much, not being seen as a professional or just appearing uncool in front of them, Mm -hmm. whatever that means, which is so germane to this movie. That is something that obviously I struggle with. I feel a lot like William Miller in those situations. And to your point about Fugit's performance, I appreciated it the first time I saw this movie, but that was something on rewatch. And I don't know, believe it or not, as much as I love this movie, as much as I've said this before, I think it came up recently that I have the shot from the end of this movie with the microphone as my avatar. Right. It has been my avatar since I saw this film pretty much and avatars existed. I have the shot of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Fugit walking up that hill talking about criticism after the radio station scene where they meet and almost famous as our header on our Facebook page and on Twitter. So I've always been enamored with this film and what this film is about. And yet I don't think I've ever watched it in its entirety since I saw it in the theater in 2001. Hmm. I've maybe caught scenes here and there. So I really was kind of watching it again for the first time. And yet I felt like I knew it so well. Just so many scenes and so many lines were really ingrained in my memory and his performance is a standout element of this movie and he was a newcomer i think this is his first real feature film his first major project anyway and that over enthusiasm when he is walking out of that first concert scene and he knows everybody's names and he can't stop himself from trying to show that he fits in. Right, right. That he's part of the group now. He's part of this larger group. Not just that he's attached to Stillwater in any way, which at this point he isn't, but he thinks he's now part of this collective, this backstage musical life. And he insists on saying hi and saying everyone's name, just as if he's even proving to himself, well, this is really happening. I, I'm part of this, and I know these people. And then the way Sapphire comes up, Feruza Balk, and kisses him and calms him down, his facial reaction there is magic. His reaction when Philip Seymour Hoffman says to him, go be a lawyer, which we know his mom has been instructing him to do earlier in the film, that look on his face, not just of disillusionment, but as if daggers had yeah, been crushed. stabbed through his heart in that moment. <laughs> it's great. So that look of despair, he just captures it perfectly. I'm glad you mentioned those specific moments because I didn't want to imply that it was just how he looks that makes this role so great. It, it sure. is in the performance. And one other thing he adds in addition to all those things you said is that when he's caught not being cool, he doesn't even have the coolness to try to cover it up. He always right. cops to his uncoolness immediately. And, and that, of course, just makes him seem more vulnerable and more yes. endearing. Yeah, it does. So I thought a lot about as soon as I finished this rewatch, why do I love this film? And before I get into some of those reasons, I do have to say that Almost Famous might be in a very small category of movies for me that I unabashedly think are great, even though I'm not convinced it's a great movie. Okay. There are problems I have with the film, and we'll discuss those problems. There are ways in which I think Cameron Crowe sabotages his own material, unfortunately. Mm. But there's so much I do adore, and I think there are some obvious things we can point to. You touched on some of this. It combines my primary interests, movies. It's a movie after all. Music, which I've noted many times, but I've been playing in bands since I was 12 years old and played instruments. So music's always been near and dear to me. And of course, criticism, what we do or try to do here on the show. And it's a movie that is about the consideration of art and the power it has and the place that it has. I've already alluded to this. I'm a card-carrying member of the uncool. I do feel like even when I'm in these circles, and sometimes you can convince yourself that when you hang around certain people, certain filmmakers, 
a little bit or whatever, you feel like you're in that circle. You feel just like William Miller backstage, like you're part of the gang. You're not part of the gang. So even when you are an insider, I often feel like the outsider. And it's a movie fundamentally, like all coming of age movies are, about figuring it out, about gaining experience, about wisdom. And we get to gain that experience and wisdom through William Miller in the film. And I think just overall, the fact that it's the type of film that gives you a scene like the one when Zoe Deschanel as Anita says, this song is why I'm leaving home. Yeah. She can't articulate to her mother why she's leaving. Which is exactly what drives her mother nuts right. about it, right? Why do we have but to Simon listen to and a Garfunkel, song? Simon and Garfunkel, they can express it. They can express something that we in our everyday lives simply cannot. And the fact that this movie and these characters have that type of reverence for music is something that I think a lot of us just can't help but to attach to. And I do love that scene in particular, the way that it starts out as diegetic music. It's there in the scene. She puts it on the record player and we're hearing it. But then that cut to them actually packing up the car. Now it's non-diegetic. Now it's Crow playing it over the scene as they do head off just like the protagonists in that great Simon and Garfunkel tune. She'll be back. Maybe not soon. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that impressed me more about the craft on this rewatch is the interweaving of the music, not only diegetic and non-diegetic, but just what songs he's going to use when, what portions of yes. songs so that you don't get a lot of just here's the beginning of the song for the beginning of this scene. And when this scene ends, we'll come to a nice ending point in the no. song. You know, it's yeah. much more Very well constructed. complicated and layered than that. I did find it, even as I'm praising that sort of construction, um, shaggier and scruffier than I remembered. And maybe that's going to point to some of the issues you had where the scenes all together didn't quite flow as seamlessly as I remembered in my mind, which huh. of course you, re- it, you remember beloved movies like this as greatest hits elements. And it, it's sort of like maybe when you stumble across that track on a greatest hits album and you're so, I don't know why that's in there. There, there were maybe a few moments where you're like, oh, I forgot this was in almost famous in general. I forgot there was this much Frances McDormand. Yes. Um, I think she's That was very, my other realization. Yeah. She, I mean, it's a, I remember it being a through line, how his mother felt and the connection to her. Um, but I didn't remember it being this good, mm-hmm. including there are scenes that are always talked about, like when she's on the phone with Russell and spins him around in an instant. But how about the one where... She's exasperated at the end of her rope with William, and I forget exactly what they're discussing at that point, but her response finally, yeah. when she realizes he's gone, that there's nothing she can do about is the this situation. Is this one where she breaks down, actually, at the end of the scene? What she says, it. this is what I remember, her response is not to condemn him, not to give him anger, not to give him a yes. final warning. It's to say, I love you. Yes. And she that's says it, it yeah. in a way that's not necessarily saying... I'm now on board with this right. or you've convinced me otherwise. She hasn't shifted in anything, including her love for him. Uh, and that's what she decides to leave with. So she's amazing. And the other element, I thought there was way more Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, and that shows right. you how 
iconic his scenes yes. are, right? And the way that you give Philip Seymour Hoffman four minutes and he'll make it feel like you just watched a feature. Yeah, I really was struck by that as well. But I'm with you. I had a complete reappreciation for Francis McDormand's performance and just how Cameron Crowe uses that character. I actually did watch this with Holden and Sophie, my two oldest kids. And I was very gratified at the end of the film that they enjoyed it. They both enjoyed it quite a bit. Holden felt like he could relate to William Miller, even though he certainly doesn't have any sense of his appreciation for music, especially rock music. But the biggest change in me from that time I saw it in 2001 is I had so much more sympathy for the mom. Mm. I mainly saw her as comedy. It was there for comedic relief. Yes. And those scenes still are maybe the funniest scenes in the movie. Anything with her and Deschanel and with Patrick Fugit. But my kids... They didn't see her as a villain exactly watching the movie, but on that Miller spectrum from William, who sees his mom as overwhelming but admirable Mm -hmm. and well-intentioned, to Anita, who sees her as soul-crushingly overbearing, my kids saw her as closer to Anita. And I think the younger you are, you probably see her that way now as a parent, which I was not in 2001. I'm way more in tune with that character and her fears. And I don't know if it's the exact same scene you're thinking of or not, but I'd completely forgotten about the one where she is talking to William. It's one of the hallway scenes. It's not the one where Russell gets on. It's the one where they introduce the new girl who says she's clairvoyant or whatever. And William can't hear what his mom's saying. And she's saying, I love you. And the way she breaks down at the end of that scene, Cameron Crowe gives her a moment to herself. This mom who is emotional, but who has otherwise had such kind of steely resolve, especially with Anita. In that moment, she's just finally done. That really resonated with me. Yeah, I do remember thinking of her as comic relief because of those highlight scenes. Also as being, well, you had to have her to show where William was from. Yeah. But – this speaks, the to there, the, yeah. this speaks to the um, the richness of the writing mm-hmm. in terms of all of these characters, so many characters, how Crow is able to juggle them, give them each their own narratives within William's experience, which is obviously the driving force, and have us feel like we're invested. We're just as invested in how his mom is experiencing yes. this journey he's on. Almost as much as we're invested in William himself. (laughs) Some of those lines, too, on the phone when she's telling Russell, now go do your best. Be bold. She's quoting Goethe. And and you've been kissing. She knows Anita's been kissing. Anita telling her, feck you. And the way she (laughs) says hey in response to that is so great. And the other really good McDormand moment, though there are so many we could point to, when... The woman on the phone, Fruza Balk, I think, answers the phone in the room and she says, is this Marianne with the pot? And they cut back to McDormand and she just closes her eyes. <laughs> it's just a very subtle close of the eyes. It's everything she feared could be happening right. has now been realized in that moment with just that one line. All those moments between the family, I really do think are gold and extremely funny. I even love the touch. And of course, it's all about the details. Because it's Crow's real life. And whether he embellished this or not, it seems like one of those elements that had to be authentic. The family whistle, right? The way that that she sends him off to that Black Sabbath concert and says, look for me later. And, you know, if we can't find each other, the the whistle. And later in the film, when he's walking away from Penny Lane, we actually do hear that whistle. She is calling for him to come back to the car. There are some really nice moments, too, that we get visually from Crow in this movie that... I wasn't aware of the first time I saw it. There's some symmetry in some of his shot choices. He likes to use that track forward 
when Anita is looking at him by the car before she goes. And we get that close up. One day you'll be cool. And that's echoed then in that shot of William's eyes close up. And we get some of that later between him and Penny Lane, of course, played by Kate Hudson, who we haven't really talked about here yet. And the love triangle shot is something he uses at least two times, maybe three times. One of them is when Stillwater is playing the song Fever Dog, Russell's on stage. So William's standing next to Penny and Russell keeps looking over at them. And the way Crow uses point of view And the close-ups, it's about Russell looking at them. Who's he looking at? Does William think he's looking at him and he's trying to impress him? Or is he, of course, trying to impress Penny Lane and that's who he's looking at? And the way William turns and sees her, we get that again in some different scenes like the one at the pool after Russell tells him, just make us look cool. In that scene, Penny's the one now in the distance looking at the two of them standing next to each other. And we get that exact same type of love triangle cross-cutting that does underscore one of the key parts of the film, which is what Russell says at the end of the movie, which is we both wanted to be with her. She wanted us to be together. Yeah, for sure. There's also some nice concert footage, I should say. It feels like real concert footage when Stillwater is on stage and the camera gets looser, more lively, and you're right there with the players, which, again, is a way of accentuating the interaction between Russell and, which is another relational dynamic that's central to this, but also between him and Jason Lee's Jeff, the lead singer and the lead guitarist and the tension there. We feel a lot of that in the the camera work on stage, not only when they're in moments of tension, but maybe even more so when the camaraderie is high and they're both in the same groove. And you understand, as he says at one point, why he's still with these guys even though he recognizes he has more talent than them. Yeah. But he may he may be able to find other bandmates who will put on a better show, but he won't have that vibe when he's on stage with these new guys that he has with these guys he's been playing with for years. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And that might be a perfect transition into some of the issues I have with the movie. And I'll build up to Mr. Crudup and Russell Hammond. I think there are some scenes that just play out way too quickly for how important they are to the film or Crow just makes some unforgivable choices. And one of them is when we watch the band meet Jimmy Fallon's agent character, the manager, the road Mm -hmm. manager character for the first time. And he's talking to them about how we're going to go buy a plane. We're going to leave the bus behind. We can fit in more shows. We can make more money. It's all about business, business, business. And Crow, for some reason, cuts in the voiceover from Williams' conversation with Philip Seymour Hoffman about how he's here for the death rattle. They're going to strangle all the life out of music. He underlines it for us in a way where just showing William Miller's face in that moment, we know what he's thinking. We're all thinking it. We all remember that diner conversation with Hoffman's Lester Bangs, and we're thinking the same thing. He doesn't quite trust us there. I also really hate the scene, frankly that takes place at Rolling Stone late in the film. He's turned the article in. Oh, yeah. We've, we've now seen two scenes where they're fawning all over him in the piece. He's in the room with Ben Fong Torres, and I should know who the other guy is because it's clearly Rain Wilson playing a real character from Rolling Stone lore. And they're fawning all over him, and then the fact checker comes in. It's a terribly acted scene. It all happens way too abruptly. They reject his story in like 30 seconds, right? even though they've been just talking it up for the last five minutes. And they completely reverse their position. 
and they don't even give him a chance to explain himself. And it goes from the cover to the garbage can just like that. And for me, the details, the verisimilitude of this movie are what's so key to making it great. And Cameron Crowe obviously knows this world. He knows the world of Rolling Stone. He knows what this process would actually be like. And in that moment, it's not even him going for an easy laugh. It's just a shortcut. It's just a shortcut to then get out of that scene and get to something else. But I actually think it's a really important scene since the whole movie has been building up to William actually turning that piece in. I understand them wanting to reject it, but how it's depicted, I don't buy for a second. No, and I, I don't think, I mean, we have backgrounds in journalism. I think even if you didn't, you would sniff out that something's false yeah. there because it goes back and forth so many times. It's it's false drama. The other issue is that it's a choice of efficiency over atmosphere. So exactly. all of those details you're talking about that are in the home scenes, well, they're not going to be built out here because all this is there to do is to set up the conflict between William and Russell and to fracture them in a way, or at least maybe not even fracture them, but set up that potential for their reunion and for the reunion to be in a really satisfying way. So that's where you see the chess pieces being set up in the screenplay. And because everything else is so authentic and fully realized, it does absolutely stand out. It's phenomenal, William, to be quite honest with you. It's sophisticated, it's intelligent. Now, we only had to cut out a couple of graphs. Jeff Beebe's mother already sent over a whole shoebox full of childhood (laughs) photos. She did. (laughs) But it's really going to look fantastic. The band just denied 90% of the story. It's a fabrication. You weren't honest. And worse, you wasted our time. Did you talk to Russell Hammond? Russell Hammond is the one who denied it. Now, wait a second. Denied it. We're going with the who? Manuscript's in my office. He's just some fan. What do you expect? Ben, wait. I think that as we have both said, there are a lot of really funny moments in this movie. And for the most part, Crow gets the comedy just right. And then there are other scenes where he just pushes too hard and it becomes too broad. One of them, I think, these are minor quibbles, but this is a movie I adore, so I'm going to quibble with it the way we do with the things we love, especially music. The scene straight out of Airplane when Sapphire is running along the bus and runs into the beam as the bus is pulling out of the stadium. Unnecessary at best. Okay, but... I, I remember that coming. I remember thinking, oh, this maybe makes do you this makes yeah. you laugh once because it surprises you. The second time you're like, no, don't do that. But going back to Fugit's face, his reaction yeah, when shot he turns, sells it. No, that's a good point. <laughs> that almost makes it worth watching again. Now, we could probably spend 20 minutes on this scene and we're not going to. And actually, Jim Polini, who helped us so much with that voicemail in our setup, he singles this scene out and likes this moment. But if you want to talk about music being used poorly in a movie everything about the scene the only scene actually josh in this entire film that really played terribly for me on this rewatch was the one right after penny lane takes all the quaaludes Mm -hmm. and william miller as he says it boldly goes where many men have gone before it's uncomfortable it's really uncomfortable and it's it's made even more uncomfortable in a movie that has so many amazing musical cues to then have my Sharia Moore pop up on the soundtrack as we cut between William's kind of horrified face and these images of Kate Hudson's struggling legs and body kind of writhing as they're pumping her stomach. 
I understand, or at least I think I understand, that it's meant to be ironic. Sure, The music in that moment is meant to be ironic because there's nothing romantic about what's happening, and I don't think The Crow is suggesting there is, but that doesn't make it any more satisfying to watch. And it's another moment where I almost feel like it's intended to be a joke. It's so ironic that I don't understand how it can be anything but us reacting and laughing almost like when you can't believe what you're watching and you recoil from it a little bit and you let out a laugh. That's what I feel like he's going for in that moment, which I don't understand. I think the difficulty with that scene, and and first of all, the kiss, the choice to kiss her while she's just about passed out. And maybe dying. Yeah, wrong choice. You could maybe argue and I'd have to watch it again, but it was a possibility that crossed my mind as it was happening and I was feeling uncomfortable is, does William think this might snap her out of it? Uh, I, I don't know if that's what the thinking was. Yeah. It's not clear. I think it's just, it's the only moment where he can finally fully express himself and yeah. his feelings for Yeah, her. which of course is, is a huge issue. Yeah. But what I do think is the ultimate problem with that entire sequence is in one scene, that's also doing many other things with their relationship Crow is trying to squeeze in all of the concerns that Frances McDormand's mother has about this lifestyle that the movie otherwise completely ignores. I mean, this is like – and I remember when this came out, there were people much more familiar with the rock scene of that era said this is like the squeakiest, cleanest ver- version sure. of what was going on. And unless I'm missing something that's top of mind, you never get a hint of – you know, the cost of any of this hard living that is part of the rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, it's Crow hinted is at, kind, but they it's not what it's about. about it. Yeah. Frances McDormand talks about it, and there it's kind of laughed off. Like, she's the over-concerning mother. Yeah. Then all of yeah, a sudden in this sequence, it all, it all is supposed to be like, yeah. here's where she's been discarded as mm-hmm. a sexual plaything. Here's where the overuse of drugs has severe, serious health costs. Yep. And it's like all this is bearing down on one sequel. It's just too much. It's it's yeah. not going to be able to to do the work that I think Crow no. wants it to and do. And another scene that is too rushed and is about efficiency is the one leading to that, the card scene where he bets her and she goes to Humble Pie. I didn't believe any of that either. And why, I know that that's also what Crow knows that life on the road. Why didn't you believe it? I I just feel like everything about the way it plays out. It's Russell's performance. It's the way. Or not performance, but Russell's demeanor in that scene. It doesn't seem like him. Also, the character who is their manager, Derek, and I'm forgetting that wonderful actor's name. Noah Taylor. Yeah, Noah Taylor. Thank you. Everything about it, Josh, it just, it plays out too rushed. It just seems like Crow needs to get to that moment where they lose her. So she'll feel betrayed. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So one other quick comedic moment that just does not work for me at all. I don't think it, you like this movie very it's much. It's another punchline, Josh. It's another punchline Crow goes for and it's the the scene on the plane. The scene on the plane where the drummer finally speaks and confesses to the whole group this truth about him mm-hmm. and the moment he says it, the plane straightens out, they get out of the weather and everything's fine. It's just a moment in a movie filled with these wonderful Funny moments like we've discussed, these moments that feel organic and truthful to the characters. It's a moment like the airplane one where to, Crow's to just going for the laugh. To Absolutely. Like, yeah, just yeah. going for the joke. He goes for the gag. And I wish it wasn't there. And I don't think we hear from that character. No, but that's... Is that his only line so of dialogue? That's actually part of the joke, too. And well, well, right. It, of course. It didn't hit me. It didn't hit me. And we could talk about this for a little bit. I put in, I made the mistake of putting in the extended edition first. 
I was watching with Holden and Sophie Untitled, the version that came out like nine right, months right. after the DVD release. And I started noticing scenes that I was sure I had mm. never seen before. And I look at the running time and it's two hours and 41 minutes long. I'm like, there's 35 extra minutes here. Yeah. I got to start over. But after I watched this movie again, I went through the extended edition and looked for the differences and I wanted to see what they were. And there is a scene. It's the one later in the film where they make the decision to spike the story. The band's talking outside a hotel and they're saying he wrote everything. He wrote the truth. Right, right. And, and Jason Lee's Jeff Beebe's all upset. And then we only get the sense that Russell Hammond may want to spike the story. He doesn't come out and say it. Well, actually, in the extended version of the movie, Jimmy Fallon does a bunch of talking there. He convinces the band that this is a bad idea. It's a pretty good scene. You don't need it. The movie doesn't need it. But I actually kind of really like the scene. And there's a moment with the drummer (laughs) where Billy Crudup says, again, this isn't in the cut that we all saw. Billy Crudup looks at him and says, you had the right idea the whole time to the drummer. And the drummer just kind of rolls his eyes. The joke being, of course, that his approach the whole time to the journalist was to never say anything. Right. So that's the whole thing is that one moment where he finally lets out this confession. The plane straightens out. I don't care. It's a bad joke. John Fedovich. Yes. I'm looking up here since we're talking about him the so drummer. much, which no one would have predicted in an almost famous review, but he plays the drummer. No, John and, Fedovich. And I do love that at least the drummer and the bass player are real musicians yes. and you can tell they're real musicians, not necessarily actors. And they, they do a serviceable job, but they are the real musicians on stage that we need, which now brings me to the big thing, Josh, the guitarist with mystique doesn't have enough of it for this film. Or I was maybe, really hoping you weren't going yeah, in this direction. I, I can't help it. Billy Crudup, you don't like? Mm, I, I overall like his performance, but hear me out here. It's actually probably more accurate to say that Mystique is all he has. He has that kind of aloof charisma, especially in contrast to Jeff Beebe and his nonstop superficial chatter that makes him kind of compelling. You're drawn to him because you want to know what's going on in that head. But we do need to buy him as a musician and as an artist, you mentioned this, that he is someone who sees himself as separate from the band. He is gone past them now as he himself verbalizes. And it's, it's just not there on the screen. It's not at all. His sound may be incendiary. William Miller may have that right, but his playing isn't. And there's a reason why Cameron Crowe always shoots him from behind. Well, yeah, I was going to say, always. do you think we 95% even see of enough of that? No, I, I don't. Feel like I don't, don't, and we need it. It's not just that Billy Crook can't pull it off. I, I think know. the movie needs it because it's constantly underscoring how great of an artist he is and why William is so drawn to him. And I'm just not sure where they went wrong. I mean, maybe they just did deliberately cast for what they thought Billy Crudup brought to the role as an actor, and they didn't approach it like the Coen brothers with Oscar Isaac in Lewin Davis or some other movies where the musicianship really does matter and you have to believe it. But I'm not sure how with Crow's background and Nancy Wilson, his wife's background, being one of the members of Heart, one of the founding members of Heart. I don't know how they didn't put more of an emphasis on that. I just think it's essential. Like I said, from every aspect of the band dynamic to that dynamic between William and him and his reverence for him, I like the performance overall. He's out of place on stage. And I think that matters. I can't go with you there. I think... You make a choice when you're, and you've cited some movies that made the other choice and it works. The choice to show the art on the screen. Yeah. I will give you another one, Patterson, where we see his poems. Yes. Adam Driver's poems that he's writing and they hold up. Okay. So that's one choice. Show the art, 
But man, then it better be good. It better work. The other choice is to not show the painting. Don't show us the poem. <laughs> yeah. And and let the performance and the other cinematic elements make you believe that it is that good. We get a Almost fair amount famous. of performance, though, in this movie, Josh. They're on stage a fair amount. They are, but as you pointed out, it's often, he's often from behind. Yeah. We get that one, like, strong chord yeah. when we first see him. They're and, just covering it up. And you realize that he's, yeah, they are covering up, but you also realize that he's, in that chord even, he's the driving force of the band. Like, the song doesn't start <sighs> until he gives that chord, turns around, and joins the others. Yeah. So I think there's filmmaking there that makes it work. And Crudup is a performer who's exactly built to play a character like this who doesn't need to show us. He doesn't need to put it on the screen because in almost every one of his roles, he's this sort of guy who he slouches onto the screen because he doesn't 100 percent want to be there. He doesn't need to be there. He's not an actor who has that that, that desire for attention that I feel right away. And I think that's part of Russell's issue, too, is he's there just essentially, the end of the day, he's there to play, right? I mean, he takes advantage of all these other benefits that it has of being a rock star, but right. he is exactly who he says to William and who William believes him to be and who William worships because of it. Yeah. So... I, I yeah. don't know. I no, think he's a strong That's point. fine. We disagree. I like the performance. I just needed to see some of the actual artistry. I really did. It makes sense. I can already hear people saying the counter to this is the band's supposed to be a mid-level rock band. And their songs are average at best, even if they weren't necessarily but written he's not. to be that but way. he's not. Okay, but he is. <laughs> and that's the unfortunate part. He I really, really is. I don't know that. You're saying you needed to see more of it. Yeah. But I yeah. don't know that we... I need to be convinced beyond just the verisimilitude of you seeing him do it. You wanted one kick-ass guitar solo to just, Maybe. just blow your hair back. Yeah, I wanted to believe him as that performer, as that artist on stage. So one other quick thing I did want to mention, totally random about this film, is something did click when I was watching the extended edition. I'm sure there's another line or there's some intimation of it. But in the extended cut, there is a moment that's definitely not in the theatrical where he has to finish his story. He is asked by the other Band-Aids to take the clothes and do the laundry. Right, right. He goes to Russell's room. He's told to go away, and he just kind of breaks down there in the hallway. Yeah. They finally do come out, Penny Lane and Russell, and they're talking to him, and they're urging him to go on the road, to stay on the road, and we'll do the interview at the next stop. And he says, I want to go home. And I was instantly taken back to The Wizard of Oz, and I was thinking about Judy Garland being lost and wanting to go home. And she has to go see the wizard who ultimately disappoints her before she can go home. And of course, Russell Hammond here is the wizard who completely disappoints him when they finally do get to meet or finally get to connect here in the scene. And it's all about this whole movie is all about life on the road versus the real world back at home and trying to avoid that type of life. And when Russell decides he needs to escape the fantasy of the road life, and connect with real people in a real place. Where is he? He's in Topeka. He's in Kansas. That's right. <laughs> he yeah. goes to Kansas. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, he could have played Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and really put a point yeah, on there it, you go. but Cameron Crowe doesn't. Overall, though, the extended edition, if you love this film, it's worth watching, but there's a reason why those scenes were left on the cutting room floor, which is usually the case with the deleted scenes. And some of them are more examples of going for the comedy where it doesn't really work at all and it's not needed. There are a couple 
moments here or there that I actually kind of like, including one exchange with Lester and William on the street, an extension of what we already see, where, remember, he's asked by Lester, do you like Lou Reed? And he says, right. the early stuff. Yeah, yeah. But now he's trying to be Bowie. He should just be himself. And I think the next line is, do you take drugs? In the longer cut, he says, now he just wants to be Bowie. He should be himself. And Lester says, but if Lou's doing Bowie and Bowie's doing Lou, then isn't Lou still doing Lou? <laughs> <laughs> that little, that extension, I could have watched, of course, an that's entire good. film that was just those scenes. Well, that's just it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... I can sense there's repetition too. Having not watched it, that sense of homesickness still absolutely comes through in Fugit's performance and the scenes we do get. So yeah, you don't you don't need him actually saying that I want to go home in that scene. That was probably a decent cut to make. We're gonna get mail if we don't talk a little bit more about Kate Hudson. And yeah, I wanted I, to ask you. I don't have a great take on her performance here. It's one that I do like, but there is a part of me that still feels on watching it again that it's a little forced. It's just a little bit forced. That that moment where she, maybe for me, it's a little bit like Billy Crudup's performance where I need to believe the artistry a little bit more. Her artistry is the way she walks into a room and owns it. Mm-hmm. She is the center of everything. And we right. get that kind of scene where they go into that room early in the film at the Hyatt House and she starts speaking in French. And for me, Josh, every time I watch that scene, I completely lose her in that moment. And I'm never... I'm never swept up in the glory and the magic of Penny Lane. Well, the filmmaking there doesn't really help her because if I recall, the camera kind of shifts away from her to wander about the room when the scene is supposed to be just directing all the attention Now, John Toll's camera loves her, though. Some of those close-ups and any of the scenes outside with the sun and the way it radiates on her, they they make her look incredible. Just her face and the way they shoot her, there's magic in that. Yeah, you're probably closer to Debbie then, who actually was getting frustrated watching this with me. And she she just said she's always acting. She's always acting. And I guess I can see that, but... For one thing, it's incredibly – the role that she's given I think is a pretty interesting choice to make when you're telling a story like this. I realize it does revolve in the love triangle with the two male characters, but she also benefits like Frances McDormand does as having her own narrative within even that larger one that mm-hmm. may be related and tied to them, but also you come to really worry about – where she's going to end up through all of this. And I think that's the element that Hudson sells when she finally does let that facade fall a little bit. And she's no longer this bright, shining flower, but more of a trampled one Mm -hmm. that's refusing to admit she's been stepped on until everybody sees it. Uh, And then, you know, towards those scenes, and unfortunately they kind of tie in with the, the one in the hotel room where she does overdose that's trying to do other things too but overall i still think she's really strong here and is able to bring that sort of that lament and loss that other flip side that the the movie really needs so i guess what i'm trying to say is i've done twice the things i said i've done what about your mom she always said marry up marry someone grand And that's why she named me Lady. She named you Lady? Lady Goodman. Lady Goodman. That's great. Now you know all my secrets. 
You got me. Believe it or not, there's a lot more we could talk about with this film, including the tiny dancer scene on the bus, which maybe, fortunately, doesn't actually need any words, Josh, to no, it, really it w- explain it. works because it doesn't use any words, yeah. so why should we waste some on it? There you go. Almost Famous is available to rent or stream on most platforms, including as a collection of forbidden vinyl hidden under your bed. If you've seen Almost Famous and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. When we come back, enough of us amateurs, rock critic Stephen Hyden joins us with his take on Almost Famous, plus the film spotting poll and more. Stay with us. Jesus freaks out in the street And in tickets out for gone Turning back, she just laughs The boulevard is not that bad Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You're in, or you're out. How can I tell you if I'm in or I'm out without you telling me the first thing about what I might be in or out of? This would be something dangerous and very exciting. Welcome back to Film Spotting. For our Chicago area listeners, we do have some advanced screening opportunities. We like to highlight these, some admit two passes to give away. To see the new crime drama, American Animals, it's about four young men college students who decide to pull off a heist because they watch. Well, not really because they watch, but they're a little bit inspired by heist movies, actually. And they decide to try to pull one off themselves. They try to steal a collection of rare books from their library. It's written and directed by Bart Layton, who did the 2012 documentary The Imposter, which I saw and very much liked. And I've actually seen this movie already and can recommend it. I don't know if it'll get more discussion on next week's show or not. It opens June 8th, but I do think it's worth seeing. And there's an advanced screening of it on Wednesday the 6th that we're giving away those passes to. And we also have passes, Josh, to a movie we're both highly anticipating. Yeah, made our summer preview lists, actually. The documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Looking back at the life and career of Fred Rogers and his show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That opens here in Chicago on the 8th. There's going to be a screening on June 6th. So if you'd like a chance at seeing that or the advanced screening of American Animals, go to filmspotting.net slash events. We also wanted to share some details about the sophomore year of Cinepocalypse. It's billed as the Midwest's largest gathering of genre, films, and fans, June 21st through the 28th at The Great Music Box Theater here in Chicago. They've got a pretty good lineup here. Dr. Strange director Scott Derrickson and the screenwriter C. Robert Cargill, who wrote Dr. Strange and Sinister. They're the co-presidents of the 2018 feature film jury. Lana Wachowski is going to host a special screening of her debut film, 1996's Bound, which I'd love to see on the big screen. 
and accepting Cinepocalypse 2018 Lifetime Achievement Award is Ernest R. Dickerson, a cinematographer who got his start with John Sayles, Brother from Another Planet, George Romero's Tales from the Dark Side TV series before shooting the first five films from Spike Lee. He also directed 1992's Juice. So a lot going on, and yeah, a lot of a big names. Bad lineup fast. at all. Again, that's June 21st through the 28th at the Music Box Theater. We will link to more information in our show notes at filmspotting.net. In case you missed last week's Southern Drawls in Illinois edition of Massacre Theater, here's a bit of what you missed. It looks like you came a long way for nothing. Well, with all due respect, uh, Sheriff Rollins, I'd like to recommend checkpoints on a 15-mile radius at I-57, I-24, and over here on whoa, Route 13 whoa, East whoa, 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 wait a minute. Massacre Theater, of course, your opportunity to win your very own film spotting T-shirt. If you know what movie we massacred, all you have to do is email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You have until Monday, June 4th. Send me to kill the Emperor. I will not kill Anakin. To fight this Lord Sidious strong enough, you are not. He is like my brother. I cannot do it. That's Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi with Master Yoda in Revenge of the Sith. McGregor, of course, taking over a role originated by the legendary Sir Alec Guinness. A couple weeks back with the new solo movie in mind, we asked you, which actor did the best job taking over an iconic role? A lot of superhero, a lot of action movies here among our options. Michael Fassbender as Magneto in X-Men First Class. Tom Hardy, Mad Max in Fury Road. Anne Hathaway as Selena Kyle slash Catwoman in The Dark Knight Rises, or James McAvoy as Professor X in X-Men First Class, Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan, or Chris Pine as Captain Kirk in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot, and finally, we gave you Zachary Quinto as Spock in that same J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot. Josh, how did it come out? James McAvoy is in last place here as Professor X with 3% of the vote. Then came Anne Hathaway. Her Selena Kyle got 6% of the vote. Zachary Quinto for Spock, 11%. Michael Fassbender as Magneto received 17% of the vote. Then we jump up to Chris Pine. My vote, the clear Mine favorite, too. I think, as Captain Kirk. But he only received 19% of the vote. At the top here, Ewan McGregor came in second place with 21% of the vote. But Tom Hardy won with 24%. Now, our very wise producer wrote this. Is this a case where Hardy benefits from being in by far the best film of those represented? Discuss. Yes. Yeah, probably. That is exactly what I thought as I was reading these and saw the results. I mean, by, yeah, because yeah, he's not far. even really the star of that movie. I mean, no, no, really, exactly. And by far is an accurate way when you look at some of those other films. So I would go, I think that explains a lot. Okay. Well, Brian Chudnow in Charlotte, North Carolina has thoughts. I would like to know how many words Tom Hardy actually says in Fury Road. The movie is amazing, but I never felt this was due to Hardy. Mel Gibson played a Mad Max that had some things to say, at least in the Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome. The only thing similar about Hardy's performance is the name. I'm going with Hathaway. Her Catwoman is the only one on the list that I felt was better than the original. Hmm. All right. Here's Jerry Bradley in Calgary. Stakes, guys, stakes. All of these, yes, even Anne Hathaway's Selena Kyle are great reimaginings of the original roles. Yes, they all bring something more to the roles they are reprising, but as written, it's Magneto's character that changes the most. As a comic book geek, it's obvious in the original X-Men trilogy that Magneto is the bad guy. He is the classic 70s, 80s Magneto. 
In the second trilogy, Fassbender is playing the 90s aughts version of Magneto, a tortured soul who wants to do good and honor his mother, but feels his power should be used to right the wrongs he has faced. He is a tortured good guy forced into becoming the bad guy. My vote goes for Fassbender. I believe he transformed and expanded the character he was asked to reprise. Fassbender, as always, brought the steaks and cooked them to a perfect (laughs) medium rare. How dare you, Jerry. James Conan in Cincinnati. The performance I like the best of these is Tom Hardy as Max, but the question is about taking over an iconic role, not bringing a new take. With that in mind, McGregor is the only answer. I don't even like those movies, but man, do I believe that his Obi-Wan grows up to be Alex Guinness's version of the character. He might be right. Even performances I like, like Michael Fassbender's Magneto, don't exactly feel like the same person emotionally. Interesting. All right. Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I assume that the one ring had you in the darkness bound when you opined that Chris Pine was both the best in the poll and the best of the Chris's. For the record, the correct ranking goes Evans, Hemsworth, Pine, Pratt. All right. Pine was by far the worst part of the Star Trek reboot what? films. Well, except for the misbegotten the effort mic. to remake the classic Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan into Into Darkness, but I digress. My vote is for Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. While his movies had considerable flaws, his performance does not factor as one of them. Finally, Jeffrey Post in Inglewood, Colorado disagrees with Ed. It's Pine. He's charismatic, funny, rebellious, and while I was skeptical at first of a bridge made up of teenagers, that cast is excellent and his Captain Kirk was perfect. He also has great chemistry with Spock, Ohura, Pike, and Bones, and chemistry is in short supply in a lot of these performances. Jeffrey is correct. That brings us then, Josh. With that poll now in the distance. To this week's question, we are looking at Pixar. As ever, we're looking ahead to Film Spotting Madness 2019, the best of the 2000s, and with Pixar's Incredibles 2 coming to theaters in a couple of weeks, we thought we'd go ahead and get some madness business out of the way. So the question we're posing to you is, which Pixar film from the 2000s should be ranked highest? Which film should get the highest seed in next year's madness? We'll go back to the best of the 90s madness that we just finished back in April. We had a Toy Story versus Toy Story 2 play-in match, Toy Story 1. It was Pixar's sole representative in the tourney, and it did make it to the Sweet 16. I think there's going to be more than one in Film Spotting Madness 2019. We want to know which one should be the highest seed. Yeah, consider this run. So these are in chronological order. Pixar's 2000s releases were Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Cars, Ratatouille, and Up. Is this obvious for you? Yeah, I still have Finding Nemo ranked as my favorite Pixar. I do too. And I think it's going to stay that way for a while. I think it probably will. The difficulty for me is that I have Ratatouille ranked number two, and the gap between them is awfully close. Hmm. So I don't know. If I watch both of these again back to back, I might switch my vote. But for now, I think I'm with you. I got to go Finding Nemo. Well, how you choose to answer this is the tough part. And of course, it is up to you in this case, the listener. You can Simply pick your favorite, as I pretty much did with Finding Nemo. You can pick the film that you think is objectively best, which, hmm, I'd still probably say Finding Nemo, even though Up might be in consideration along with The Incredibles. Or you can pick the film some younger version of you watched so many times that you are no longer capable of objectivity. And that's also Finding Nemo for me. I think that's also how most of our polls go. Yeah, of course, we should point out that neither of us were exactly young, though we were younger when we saw Finding Nemo, but our children were very young. And in the case of Holden, as I've said before, my oldest, this was the first movie he watched obsessively. So I am carrying with it the baggage, the weight of that nostalgia and seeing the movie through his eyes. 
that's probably not fair to the rest of these films. We look forward to your vote and to your feedback. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. God, it's going to get ugly, man. They're going to buy you drinks. You're going to meet girls. They're going to try to fly you places for free, offer you drugs. And I know it sounds great, but these people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb. You know, and you're smart enough to know that. And the day it ceases to be dumb is the day it ceases to be real. Right? The late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs in Almost Famous. We're using that clip to introduce one of the great contemporary rock writers, Stephen Hyden, is back on Film Spotting. Thank you so much for doing the show, Stephen. Thank you. You know, I can't really compare myself to the fictional Lester Bangs. You know, I, I, <laughs> it's funny because like when people talk about Lester Bangs now, I feel like everyone pictures Philip Seymour Hoffman as totally. Lester Bangs. Oh, like yeah. That has become the greatest rock critic of all time. Yeah. Like his portrayal Pretty of much. Lester Bangs. Yeah. Because I think the, the actual Lester Bangs, he, he, you know, he had some great attributes to him, but the Philip Seymour Hoffman version is a little bit warmer and fuzzier. You know, so that, I know that's the one I always think of when I think of Lester Bangs. Now. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk maybe a little bit more about Lester and Hoffman's performance and Almost Famous as a movie a little bit later. But first, we want to welcome you officially. You are a culture critic at Uproxx.com, former writer at AV Club and Grantland. You wrote the 2016 book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, What Pop Music Rivalries Reveal About the Meaning of Life. We, of course, had you on the show back in 2016 to talk about movie rivalries. And you do have a new book out. Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, and you're a podcast host. I know some of our listeners surely enjoy Celebration Rock as well. I want to ask you the obvious first question here. How and when did this book begin? I mean, you have obviously a long history with Classic Rock, but at what point did you realize that this was the makings of a book? Well, I had the idea originally in, it was like 2012 or so, and in the book, in the first chapter, I write about seeing The Who on the Quadrophenia tour. And that was the first time when I realized that a lot of my classic rock heroes were getting to the age where they weren't going to be able to continue touring anymore, either because they were going to retire or, uh, you know, pass away. And, of course, you know, The Who were still touring at that time. They weren't on a farewell tour or anything, but... That's when I started thinking about that as an idea. And I actually had pitched it as an idea before Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. I, I couldn't really get anyone interested in it. So then I wrote that book, uh, uh, my first book. And then, like, in 2016, there was this series of events that happened where, you know, David Bowie passed away, Prince passed away, uh, Glenn Fry, A lot of these classic rockers... Uh, started dying and it seemed to be something that a lot of people were talking about. And this thing that I'd been thinking about a couple years earlier, it just seemed to be more in the front of mind in culture generally. So it seemed like at that point it was an idea that just seemed like it was more natural to talk about. So it was really like 2016, I think where I started, you know, that that's when I started writing the book and, all these things just started happening. You know, it wasn't just rock stars passing away. It was like weird things like 
Axl Rose joining ACDC, you know, yeah. or there was that event uh, in uh, in the desert in California, a desert trip where all like the Stones and Roger Waters, Dylan, Neil Young, uh, The Who, and I think there was someone out, Paul McCartney, I think that grossed like $160 million, like this big classic rock show. So again, there were all these things that were kind of happening at once um, that coincided with me writing the book. And it just seemed like it was, it was an idea whose time had come. Yeah. So that's the inspiration behind this. But what was the project? I mean, what did you hope to accomplish? Because it's very much, I'm about 60% of the way through the book so far, I think. It's both a personal history your personal history with classic rock and a survey, a very detailed, thorough survey of the defining bands of the genre. Yeah. I mean, I think my thought was I wanted to write a book from the perspective of someone who came to this music a decade or two after it had had its heyday, you know, someone who had come to the music through classic rock radio, which was my experience. You know, like I started listening to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and the Beatles and the Stones and all those bands like in the early nineties when I was a teenager and you know, I, you know, there's so many books about classic rock. I mean, you could fill a library with all of the books that have been written over the years, but I haven't really seen a book written from that perspective. Uh, you know, someone who's a member of generation X or, or even younger, who's, who's become a fan of that music. And I actually feel like that's a pretty common experience. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm 40 but there's people even younger than me uh, who are, you know, in their teens and 20s who love this music. And, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with classic rock radio. I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the mythology that's been built up around these bands. And I just thought that was something that was worth exploring. That, in addition to, again, this moment that we're in right now where, you know, any time a famous musician passes away, we see all of these people on social media, it's just like an outpouring of remembrances and people talking about how these musicians were, you know, not just making music that they love, but in a way they, these people were, were a big part of their past, you know, and, and not just people that grew up with them, like in the seventies or sixties or whatever, but, you know, people that grew up listening to David Bowie in the nineties and two thousands, uh, because of the radio and, and all that. And it, it just seemed like a phenomenon that like we're just sort of beginning to experience, you know, cause we're going to be seeing more and more of these famous musicians, uh, retire or, or pass away in the years ahead. And it, it just seemed like a conversation that was very relevant to people right now, um, that I hadn't really seen anyone talk about yet. So it seemed like a good opening, you know, for, for me to write a book about it. So, Stephen, let's set some boundaries, maybe, or provide a little context for listeners and for our conversation. What are we talking about when we say classic rock here? How would you define that era, the music itself, or the people who, who created the best of it? So this is a very tricky question, because classic rock isn't really a genre. It was really something that was invented by the radio in the early 80s. It was a radio format. And what stations did you know those early classic rock stations was codify this generation of bands that originated in the 60s and 70s um and they put this made-up term on them you know classic rock and the idea was basically at the time that they were going to appeal to you know listeners of a certain demographic who 
still love that music and, and maybe weren't all that interested in hearing something new, you know? And really, I mean, up until that point, the idea of just preserving a generation of bands in Ember and playing them forever, you know, that wasn't something that had really been done a whole lot. You know, the radio was something where you went to hear the latest songs and songs would have their heyday and then they would fade away. And classic rock was this format where it preserved those bands. So like for me, like it really starts with the radio. Um, because I, I do think that the bands that get played on classic rock radio, even now are the bands that we associate with the term. So Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, the Beatles, the Stones, the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Steely Dan, um, you know, Neil Young, all those artists, you know, there's a lot of artists from that era who don't get played on the radio and they, we don't think of them as classic rock. Like one thing I talk about in the book is like David Bowie is definitely a fixture of classic rock where you can hear everything from space oddity up until his songs in the early eighties, you know, like let's dance, modern love, all those are still played on the radio. Then you have someone like Lou Reed, who was a good friend of David Bowie and they were, you know, collaborators and they were compatriots. And, you know, this might vary, I guess, depending on where you live in the country. I know living in the Midwest, the only Lou Reed song I ever heard on classic rock radio was, was walk on the wild side, yeah, which was produced by David Bowie. Um, otherwise Lou Reed has always been more of a cult artist, you know, someone that if you were into punk music, you knew who Lou Reed was, but like, if you listen to like, Kansas or Sticks or Boston or Ario Speedwagon, all those bands that you know have had this long life because of classic rock radio, you wouldn't necessarily know as much about Lou Reed as you would maybe about David Bowie. Um, so again, it is more of a radio-based definition. But you know, people have all kinds of different definitions for this. Some people look at classic rock as almost like a qualitative statement, like where you're saying these are the best rock bands. Hmm. Other people look at it almost as an insult, you know, to be called classic rock, meaning that you've been sort of, you know, flogged to death, you know, by baby boomers and all of that. Um, so I lay out how I define classic rock in terms of my book, but it's certainly a very amorphous term, you know, that can mean different things to whoever happens to be talking about it. Yeah. Well, speaking of the radio, my answer to the question, what is classic rock is, was it played on 95 KGGO out of <laughs> Des Moines when I was growing up in Iowa? Because if they were, then right. that's definitely classic rock. And I want to ask you a personal question about some of these groups. Was there a band? Is there still a band, a classic rock group that for whatever reason you have just always resisted? Because mine is an artist that you do write about in some detail in the book. The road chapter, you talk about, of course, Bob Seger. How can you not turn the page, right? Well, every time Seger came on KGGO, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. I cringed every time I heard Bob Seger. And only in recent years have I kind of been like, you know what, Night Moves is a pretty okay song. But I always hated Seger. So I wonder if you have a Bob Seger corollary. Oh, there, there's tons of them. I mean, you know, in, in the book, I write about what I call the underclass of, of classic rock, which is a lot of these sort of middle American faceless corporate rock bands uh, that came out, you know, that really had their 
Moment in the Sun in the late 70s and early 80s. And I mentioned some of them already, but like Styx, Ario Speedwagon, Boston, uh, Kansas, a lot of those bands. Like when I was younger, I'd be really excited to hear Won't Get Fooled Again and Born to Run and Cashmere and you know all of those great songs by like the sort of like headliner or or a-list classic rock bands and then you would hear you know uh take it on the run by ario speedwagon mm-hmm. or you'd hear come sail away by sticks or you know dust in the wind or carry on wayward sun like songs like that and i always thought that was pretty corny like like those bands now however it's interesting because there is a bit of Stockholm syndrome for me with, with that kind of music because I listened to so much classic rock radio as a kid. When I look back, I feel nostalgia even for the songs I don't really like. So even a band like, you know, Kansas who yeah, like I never bought any of their albums and I never really like was a huge fan of them. If I hear Carry On Wayward Son now, like I feel much more affection hmm. for it than I did then. Or a band like Boston, who I, I've come to legitimately love. I think the first Boston record is like just a perfect yeah. sort of arena rock record. Sure. Um, you know, at the time, like, in, like when I was a kid, I would have thought they were they weren't cool enough to love. But I, I, I definitely came around on them. So. I don't know. I write, I write about the Eagles a lot in mm-hmm. the book. I, I talk about them being sort of like a archetypical classic rock band. But I definitely have a love-hate relationship with them. Like, there's Eagles songs that I hear that I would be perfectly fine never hearing again. You know, Life in the Fast Lane. Yes. You know, if I never heard that song again, <laughs> I'm I'd okay be with happy, that. You know? <laughs> yep. But at the same time, hating the Eagles is so much fun that it kind of makes me love them. Right. You know, it's a very twisted <laughs> relationship with them. And the Eagles have a great documentary. And I've talked to a lot of people who can't stand the Eagles, but they love that movie. Oh, totally, sure. Because uh, they have a great story. They do. You know, uh, if you want to talk about the history of classic rock, the Eagles are are kind of a good microcosm of that story. Yeah. You know, they went through all the highs and lows that you would see in any Behind the Music episode. Uh, so... Yeah, even the bands I kind of don't like, I've, I've come to love okay, in, so, in a weird way. So that was kind of where my next question was going to go, and I think you answered it, especially with Boston. I was wondering if there was anyone who, any group or artist that you didn't just have kind of a reluctant affection for, but genuine appreciation for who you used to hate. Because for me, that's Tom Petty. I was one of those clueless people who, for whatever reason, the first, honestly, about 30 years of my life, I, I could appreciate that the songs were catchy for the most part. But I just thought they were too simple. I didn't get what the attraction was to Tom Petty. And I didn't really enjoy listening to any of his songs. Free Fallen was pretty good, but otherwise I didn't listen to him at all. And actually, we're talking about Cameron Crowe. It was, of all things, his song Square One being on the Elizabethtown soundtrack. I loved that song so much that I started listening to more Tom Petty. And then, of course, I saw him in concert at the United Center here in Chicago, and he just killed. And I realized, oh, you know what? Like, Ben Montench is amazing, and Mike Campbell's amazing. And these songs are simple, but they're subtle and beautiful, and they're popular for a reason. And if everyone could do what Tom Petty's doing, everyone would do it. And I've completely come around on him. I love him now. I mean, I think that's a common experience. I, I think now, you know, Tom Petty is gone, and there's this 
yeah, anytime someone dies, it changes how we talk about someone's life and their career. And it's so easy now to appreciate what Tom Petty did. But I think during his life, for long stretches of his career, he was an artist that people took for granted because he was never like the flashy uh, guy making very ambitious records that were obviously impressive. Yeah. Like if you compare him to Bruce Springsteen, for instance, I mean, Bruce, a record like darkness on the edge of town or the river or Nebraska, these very sort of very impressive, like formally impressive records, thematically impressive, very ambitious and big songs about America and the economy and like the state of the world. You know, it's easy to take him seriously and like Tom Petty didn't really do that a whole lot in his career. He kind of just made he made really good albums, but I think his specialty was writing perfect sounding songs for the radio. Yeah, you know, like like his greatest hits album, I think, is like one of the great rock records of all time. You know, just all of his singles together, it, it's so good. And but it's one of those things like like when you hear the waiting, you know you can kind of get used to how great that song is. It's only when I think he died and people realized that he was never going to write a song like that anymore, where you hear it and you're like, wow, like that's a song you can hear a thousand times and you never really get sick of it. And maybe you don't realize how great it is until the thousandth time you hear it. You know, like that was his talent. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I just think he was always an easy guy to take for granted. So I think your experience isn't that unusual. Mm. I think a lot of people probably went through that with him. Yeah, I was just going to say that this is my best tease I can throw out there for the book. If people are listening, of course, who are film spotting fans, the way you describe the personalities, this has nothing to do with the quality of their music or the quality of our criticism. But in terms of personalities, I'm way more Springsteen and Josh is way more Tom Petty. Hmm. I'm just throwing that out there. Interesting. If people now want to read the book and see what I'm talking about, a little a little insight into how this show works. That's how I break it down I'll along to, the lines I'll you have to do. Think Stephen. about that a little bit. <laughs> so, um, Stephen, what's the future of classic rock look like? You know, predictions of its death. Well, rock has been declared dead many times. It comes back. When you think about classic rock itself, especially, is there a way it survives past the death of the boomer generation that created it? Are we gonna? Are these songs gonna find a new place in you know future movies? Are filmmakers gonna turn to them in in ten? 20 years and still use the power that they have for for their own films Uh, how do you see the future of classic rock possibly turning out you know that's a that's a great question and it's something i've been thinking about a lot and it, it, it i don't really arrive at an answer in the book because i think we're still gonna we're gonna see how that plays out in the years ahead i mean i i'm inclined to think that once these artists aren't around to tour anymore, that that will inevitably affect how we perceive this music. Uh, because, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, like, you know, even if, like, the Rolling Stones or Springsteen, they're not having hits, they're still among the most successful artists on the road right now. Like, if you look at the year-end tour grosses for any year, it's always dominated by classic rock artists. You know, they, they usually make up a good part of the top 10 year in and year out. Um, so like when they're not able to tour anymore, 
I, I just wonder, like, how will that affect how we look at these bands? On the other hand, you know, I remember I saw the Rolling Stones on the Voodoo Lounge tour. It was the first big stadium show I ever saw. I was 16 years old. It was 1994. And I remember I had a sense of urgency for that tour because I, I, have, I felt that if I didn't see the Stones in 94, that I would never get to see them. Because Mick Jagger was 50 years old or around 50. And it just seemed like, okay, they're going to be done after this tour. You know, they will retire hmm. after this tour because, you know, someone being 50 years old and being in a rock band in the 90s, that was kind of inconceivable. I mean, it had never happened before. And of course, you know, that's like almost 25 years ago now and the Stones are still on the road. And what happened is, is that every step of the way, the Stones have sort of redefined how old you can be and still be a rock band. And, you know, and other people too, other people of that generation. So, you know, now we're at a point where, you know, these musicians are in their 70s and still touring. Maybe they'll be in their 80s and still touring. And maybe after they die, there will be hologram tours that people want to go see. And they'll redefine how long this music can last in the afterlife, you know? I mean, it, it seems kind of crazy now to think about that, but it was crazy to think in the 90s that Mick Jagger would be 75 and still performing, yeah. you know? So it, it remains to be seen, you know? Uh, but yeah, I, I look at a band like Greta Van Fleet, you know, who's a young rock band from Michigan, and they're all, all the members of that band are like between the ages of like 18 and 21, or so. And they sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. Like, exactly. Hmm. And they're a band that is like a buzzy band. They're selling out shows all over the country. They're starting to move into theaters. Um, so, I don't know. I'm very intrigued to see where this music goes uh, from here. Um, but certainly, again, we, we are inevitably reaching the point where the original musicians will not be around. Yeah. And that by itself, I think is something worth reflecting on and, and whether it continues after they're gone, you know, remains to be seen. Yeah. But I'm very intrigued to see what happens. Mm. A perfect transition to almost famous because there is the memorable line from Jimmy Fallon's Dennis Hope, the road manager who says, if you think Mick Jagger will still be out there trying to be a rock star at age 50, then you are sadly, sadly mistaken. <laughs> one of the jokes in the film, one of the many jokes in that film from Cameron Crowe. And I'm curious first, just what your kind of relationship to the movie Almost Famous is. When it came out, you're just a couple years younger than Josh and me. You would have been just out of school, out of college for a few years. I imagine embarking on a writing career, embarking on a writing career about music when something like Almost Famous comes along and it is in your wheelhouse as much as it is. How much were you anticipating it? And then did it live up to any expectations you had? Well, I was definitely anticipating it because I was a Cameron Crowe fan already. I mean, going back to Say Anything. You know, I loved Say Anything as a kid. And, I, you know, and really every step along the way, I was with... I mean, I knew Cameron Crowe as the screenwriter of uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. You know, and I was aware of his, you know, background as a Rolling Stone journalist you know, as I write about in my book, I was a big Led Zeppelin fan. So I knew that he had, 
you know, interviewed Led Zeppelin, profiled Led Zeppelin when he was a teenager. And like, what kind of fantasy is that? Like, if you are a teenage fan of Led Zeppelin and to see this guy that had been able to hang out with the, with Jimmy Page and Robert Plant when he was in high school. Um, so, you know, like when he, when I heard that he was going to make a movie about, uh, basically his own life, uh, and, and talking about the Rolling Stone stuff. I mean, it was amazing. I was very excited about the movie and, and then the movie came out and I loved, I loved the movie so much. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people love this movie, but if you are a music writer, if you're a rock critic, um, it really is like just a whole other level. I think where it's like being an investigative reporter and watching all the president's men. Yeah or being a fighter pilot and watching Top Gun, <laughs> you know, or a lawyer and watching A Few Good Men. You know, it's like, it is the ultimate sort of fantasy of what you would want to do. And like you said, I was just starting out in my career when this movie came out. Almost Famous came out in 2001. So I, I graduated from college in 2000. So I was already working and uh, I was working for my hometown paper at the time. And I think I knew at that point that the days where you would go on the road with a rock band for like three weeks were like long gone. Hmm. Like, you know, like I was pretty naive about how, you know, journalism worked, I think still at that point. But I knew that that was totally a remnant of the past. But, you know, loving 70s rock and being a music writer, I mean, this was just the ultimate movie for me and the ultimate sort of fantasy and, and it's kind of stayed that way ever since. I mean, I feel like this movie, among music critics, it's sort of fashionable to discredit this movie, you know, to say that, like, well, you know, it's just a fantasy or uh, it doesn't hold up as well. But I, I, every time I watch this movie, it totally connects with me. And I think, you know, Cameron Crowe, whatever you want to say about some of his movies after this, you know, maybe being hit or miss. I feel like the combination of his music knowledge and also, you know, that sort of romantic spirit that he brings to all of his movies and also the humor that he brings, it, it really just can, it all connects and comes together really beautifully in that movie. I mean, I, I feel like if there was any movie that he was going to hit out of the park, it was that one. Yeah. You know, and, uh, for me, it totally holds up even now when I revisit it. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. As you look at it, you know, years after you've gotten into your career and it's significantly grown and you've learned the ropes and seen how things work, when you revisit it again, it still has that authenticity to you? It still still rings true in those same ways? Yeah, I mean, I think it is pretty authentic, but it also, I mean, it, it's a totally different era, you know? So there's things that I can't really speak to. Sure. The authenticity of it. I mean... To me, I, I look at it more as a fantasy, you know, and th- not saying that uh, it wouldn't be authentic to someone who was a journalist in the 70s, but it's more of like what I wish I could have been through. You know, I wish I could have had the opportunity to be on the road with one band mm-hmm. for like weeks and, and to just immerse myself in the world of a band and like all the things that they go through. Because you, there, there's no way you get that kind of opportunity now. If you can spend a day with a band, 
that's pretty incredible. And I've had the chance to do that, you know, here and there. Right. And that's pretty great. But like, you, you know, we're going to like, we're going like across the country to different venues and like you're in dressing rooms and you're watching the lead singer and the guitarist argue about the tour shirt. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're, there's no way a publicist would ever let you do that now. <laughs> but that doesn't detract from the movie for me. In a way, it makes me value the movie more because I get to, I can at least live vicariously through William Miller. You know, I can, like, I'm not going to be able to hang out with Stillwater, but I can hang out with William Miller while he's hanging out with Stillwater and have a proxy experience, you know, through this movie. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Stephen, about some of the things maybe Almost Famous doesn't get right. I did have a few issues with the movie as much as I love it. Josh and I discussed them. We agreed for the most part on some of the scenes that just don't quite work or feel inauthentic. We talked about some of the comedy at times being a little bit too broad, Crow going for punchlines. But the one we disagreed with, and I really do want to hear your take, is the performance of Billy Crudup and really more the depiction of Russell Hammond and the fact that they clearly cast someone who doesn't really have any musical ability or who isn't playing the guitar. And he's maybe not quite the artist that everyone else makes him out to be. And that William seems to think he is. Do you agree with that take or disagree? Oh, well, I, I disagree with you. Okay. So I guess I, I, I agree with Josh. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, that would be me, Stephen. Because I feel like the fact that Stillwater is not a great band yes. is one of the great things about Almost Famous. Yeah. And I think that was a deliberate choice by Cameron Crowe. I feel like I, I watched a DVD extra where he talked about writing the Stillwater songs with his wife, Nancy Wilson mm-hmm. from Heart, and how one of the things that they were trying to do when they were writing the songs is to make sure that the songs weren't too good. <laughs> they succeeded. Because the idea was that this was an up-and-coming early 70s band, right. but like not a great 70s band like one of those again one of those middle american sort of boogie rock bands that would have been big at the time but ultimately forgettable and i think you know like when they talk about him being a great artist i think the authenticity in that is that when whenever you're in a band situation and you're talking to artists you know there's always that one person in the band that everyone talks about being great you know where they talk about this person with a certain amount of awe and it's the reality that gets created in the sphere of a band, you know, where there has to be one genius. But you step outside of that, and that person rarely is a genius. You know, they're just a pretty good musician that somehow formed this band and convinced everyone around him that, that he was great. And I really think that that is what Crow is going for. I don't think the point is that Russell Hammond actually is this genius. Mm. It's that the people around him think that he's a genius. I think if that movie like had a sequel that was set like in 1980 or 1981, like Russell Hammond would probably be on the downswing of his career. Yeah. Hmm. You know, and I think, I mean, to me, that's how I feel like what, what, that's how I read the movie anyway so yeah i don't know i i love the sort of like mediocrity of Stillwater. Sure. yeah in the band i think that's very deliberate in the movie i mean i think that totally works and that that does feel truer to life in a lot of ways yeah uh, that, that that crow did it that way yeah and you know uh, one thing i i need to now 
watch the film kind of with these eyes is it's not just about how the others perceive him. It's potentially how he perceives himself. He says very directly he thinks that he has more talent than anyone else in the group. But maybe that's just part of his own fantasy, you know, as a character that that's one of the ways that he is deluding himself about his abilities. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. And I think that's just a common thing. If you're in a band, I think if you have, you know, the, um, if you're a person who actually says that like, I belong on a stage or I, be- I I deserve to be on the cover of Rolling Stone, I mean, you have to have a certain level of megalomania, you know, in order to 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 do that, you know, to, to have that kind of level of, uh, of self-belief. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that there are very few geniuses, you know, like most people are not geniuses. Most people are just pretty good and they put out pretty good music for a while and then they sort of drift away, you know, and that's fine, you know, but like when you're in the moment, you know, everyone is a genius. Every, you know, like we're, like we're, we're the best. We're going to be, we're going to be the next Led Zeppelin and you go for it and you try your best and then you inevitably fail and, and you go away, you know, and mm-hmm. that's the trajectory of almost every single rock band ever. Look, I'm always going to tell you the truth. From the very beginning, we said, I'm the front man and you're the guitarist with Mystique. That's the dynamic we agreed on. Paige, Plant, Mick, Keith. But somehow it's all turning around. We have got to control what's happening. There's a responsibility here. Excuse me. Great stuff there from Stephen Hyden on Almost Famous. And you'll get a whole lot more great stuff from Stephen next week as he returns for our top five classic rock moments in movies. That's a whole show devoted to that top five. His new book, again, is called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, available wherever you buy your books. His All Things Rock podcast is Celebration Rock. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. If you have any feedback at all, you can reach us at feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll, which picks our film from the 2000s should be the highest seed in next year's Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2000s. Also, if you haven't already, please check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. They're both in Apple Podcasts, or you can find them through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend, Mary Shelley, about the love affair between poet Percy Shelley and 18-year-old Frankenstein writer Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, played by Elle Fanning. In wide release, we have Action Point, a daredevil designs and operates his own theme park with his friends. It stars, of course, Johnny Knoxville. Adrift, a young couple's chance encounter leads them first to love, then on the adventure of a lifetime as they face one of the most catastrophic hurricanes in recorded history. Shailene Woodley stars in that. And Upgrade, a self-identified technophobe, has his world turned upside down, and his only hope for revenge is an experimental computer chip implant called STEM. Josh. Yes. We're going to do that game again where you have to pick one. (laughs) Action point, adrift, or upgrade. I have seen... The Action Point trailer, so I'm not choosing that. I've seen the Adrift trailer 57 times. Okay, and Shailene Woodley is promising. I, I'll probably go with Adrift. I'm going to go with Adrift. How no about way. you? No way. No? 
them getting stranded out on the water like that in the middle of nowhere, it's it's too much for me, too scary. I would definitely go with Johnny Knoxville. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach some new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Mic check, one, two, three. Mic check. <clears throat> testing, testing, one, two, three. So what was more exciting than coming to my house on Memorial Day? Um, it is, this weekend is always Adeline's birthday and our anniversary. So we got into, well, we got into Girl and the Goat. Um, well worth the wait. Oh, yeah. Holy cow. So good. We've, I've, we're already talking about trying to book reservations for like, you know, six months from now. (laughs) We need another hour just to talk about this. To go back. We got to take this off hot mics because... It was amazing. We could just talk about the cauliflower and the green beans. Yeah. For the whole show. It was good stuff. So, yeah. And then um, Memorial Day was uh, doing birthday stuff. Yeah. And which included seeing Solo with the family. Yeah. How did that go? Um, You know, I... Generally favorable. I'd say landed around where I am. Wish it could have been a lot more, um, but there's a lot of stuff to like in it. And what else did... Oh, otherwise it's been a lot of NBA uh, in my house. You know, two game sevens. Two game sevens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had to watch a movie again. And of course, like Solo. How long is Solo again? It's like 223 or something. That was, that's what the initial invite said, but I think it's closer to like 2.15 because I remember the screening. Close enough. Yeah, it still feels too long. Quinn has been begging me to see Avengers. Oof. Infinity War for two or three weeks. I mean, since it came out. And it's a case where I don't think he's seen any of the other films, but he's on YouTube so much mm-hmm. that he knows everything. Okay, he's like watched he, all the highlights. I, I don't even know if it's the highlights, but he has watched enough videos in general about the Avengers, whatever they do, kids these days on YouTube. He's seen so much Marvel-related stuff that he he knows everything. He, he knows, knows everything. Well enough. Like, I think there was even a video that's like 19 things you need to know about Infinity War sure. or something. And so, sure. so he, he's all caught up, and, and he can go watch it. And so then Connor, who always wants to leave every movie he's at, about 22 minutes in he wanted to go too because quinn wanted to go and then sophie thought she'd go sophie was not buying it sophie wasn't having any of the marvel stuff she just she did not care she thought did it was she so go, though oh yeah she I'm went surprised she even went yeah but she she just could not get into it she all, wanted to go and huff a lot she did connor i think liked it but quinn quinn really liked it so i guess it was worth it but when i sat down when i sat down I thought, I really can't believe. I started to have like cold feet as I was driving to the theater. I'm like, I'm really going to go sit through this whole thing again for my son. Another, Is it worth it? Yeah, it's another two real parenting moment for when we revisit that list <sighs> and then in 10 years. I, I talked myself into it and I went and I got to say, I felt like maybe I was a little too hard on it the first time. It, it, it actually, it, 
it hums along. It hums along pretty well. Even the second time I saw it, I, I was surprised at how much it didn't bother me. I still, I still don't think it's a great movie. I definitely thing, don't need to see it again. The only but. thing that struck me differently, my overall initial take was still pretty much the same. Um, but the only thing that did strike me is there were more pauses and I wouldn't call them quiet moments, mm-hmm. but there's more downtime yes. than I experienced during me the initial too. viewing. Yeah. But other than that, all my other issues remain. Yeah. And I said this on Letterboxd. It bugged me the first time. It still bugs me the second time. And that is that essentially spoilers, if anyone's actually listening to this and you haven't seen Infinity War yet. I can't stand the fact that basically they they have Thanos defeated and then Quill loses his cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, everything. The destruction of half of the universe hinges on the fact that Peter Quill can't keep his cool in that moment. And I know that the whole movie is about people making those types of decisions and it's all about sacrifice and and letting their emotions get the best of them. There are all these moments where that happens. And yet in that moment, they literally almost have the glove off of Thanos and he can't hold it in for that moment. He's basically responsible for the destruction of the world. And it doesn't work because... I've never bought the Quill Gamora relationship. They've never invested enough time enough. or the right the right kind of time in them in the Guardians films yeah. where that made me convinced he'd lose it to that degree in that situation for her. So I think yeah, that's that didn't work. I fit in a few things that I'll say real quick. Uh Friday night, <laughs> we've been waiting. I mean, I don't remember even when this aired. It was months ago. We finally just got around to watching Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh yeah. The live was... NBC. Production. I'm going to say it was on Easter. That yes, aired. thank you. See, there's a reason why I keep you around. And we finally watched it, and it's really good. Yeah, I yeah. heard good things yeah, about it. It's really good. Uh, the guy, Brandon Victor Dixon, maybe the guy who plays Judas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm always going to compare to Carl Anderson and Ted Neely. Sarah's even worse about that than I am. I mean, John Legend actually, I think, does a, a pretty good job as Jesus. Okay, but he's not Ted Neely, and and anything but Ted Neely is just not good enough for Sarah. Okay. She's not having well, it. She's not having any choice anybody makes that isn't the same choice he makes. And the guy who plays Judas makes some different choices than Carl Anderson, but he's definitely got the pipes and he's he's a real presence. So I, yeah, I enjoyed it. I'd, I'd watch it again, actually. I recommend it. And then I, I just finished up mostly on on Sunday, maybe Monday of Memorial Day. I watched the two-part Apatow Gary Shandling documentary oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. on demand. The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. Wow. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. I mean, really gets into that guy and his talent and his psyche and what drove him in a way that I'm not sure many biopic type hmm. movies or documentaries do. Now it helps that it's two parts and both parts are about two hours long. So, I mean, it, it gives cow. it, yeah. I mean, it's like three forty-five or something like that. So yeah, okay. it, it gives him his due and it's worth it good nuts and bolts comedy backdoor stuff behind the scenes oh, stuff too ton that's of what it. yeah that's ton what i would love yeah where am i going to find those four hours though film spotting is listener supported join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes monthly bonus shows our weekly newsletter and for the first time all in one place the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005 that's at filmspottingfamily.com